we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Welcome to Talking Australia. My name is Chrissy Goldrick and my guest this morning learned to fly a plane before he learned to drive a car. In 2013, at the age of 19, he became the youngest person ever to fly solo around the world in a single-engine plane at the tender age of 19. Two years later, he was the only survivor in a tragic air crash that left him paralysed from the waist down. Today, he's not only walking again, but he's also back in the cockpit doing what he loves best. Please welcome my guest today, Ryan Campbell. Good day, Ryan. Yeah, g'day, Chrissy. It's good to see you again. Let's go back a little bit further than when you became the youngest person to fly around the world uh, to where this whole idea of being a pilot came from. Because it seems to me, from what I know of you, you're happiest and most comfortable when you are flying around in the air. That is your natural place. So where did it come from? Were you sort of born with this great urge to fly? I I was a six-year-old kid and um, my mom, my dad, my two brothers and I, we jumped on an airplane, a Boeing 737 in Sydney, and we were flying to uh, an island in the Pacific called Vanuatu. And it was that day and that experience of being on that airplane and, you know, being given the window seat and taking off. And then prior to September 11, being asked to visit the cockpit, it was that kind of whole day that just kind of wrapped me up in the world of aviation. And I think for me, I was pretty lucky because I discovered a passion at a young age. As I grew older and started to really look into flying seriously, I realized that my granddad who passed away when I was young and my uncle were uh, pilots and my dad wanted to be a a pilot. My brothers wanted to learn to fly. So I went from a six-year-old kid discovering this kind of passion of mine to a, you know, 14-year-old kid now working after school to fund flying lessons and kind of surrounded by other aviation uh, kind of addicted humans in my family. So, And that was, is that around Wollongong? I started uh, and finished around the world flight from Wollongong just because it was closer to Sydney. But, and we, I've had quite a few cool kind of moments in my aviation career happen at Wollongong. But um, I actually grew up in Marimbula down on the far south coast, just above the Victorian border. So that's my little slice of paradise that um, I, I love so much. So. And is there, um, was there like a, a, an airport that you knew when you were, uh, you know, six, seven, eight though, in those years where you could see people flying these small planes? My uncle actually owned the scenic flight business at Marimbula Airport. And he's owned that for as long as I can physically remember, well before I was around. He actually sold it last month, which is very sad. But um, he had the business there in Marimbula. So we could... Yeah, so we had access to the airport, but surprisingly, we didn't spend a lot of time with him and around that airport. It was kind of, it just wasn't something we really did. It, it become, aviation becomes something that I would read about or watch on TV or watch on the internet and kind of, you know, go down the, uh, the local news agents and grab the flying magazine, whatever it took. 
Um, but as we got older, we, we ended up spending a ton of time at Marimbula Airport. Now, you discovered uh, at a young age that you could actually get a pilot's license before you could even get a driving license. <laughs> so tell us what happened. How did you, uh, what age were you when you when you got behind the, you know, the, the into the cockpit of a, your first aircraft and actually took hold of the controls? My first flying lesson was when I was 14. And it's kind of a wild story because as a 14-year-old kid, you know, I, I was passionate about aviation. I wanted to be an airline pilot. I'd asked myself the question, okay, well, how is this going to happen? You know, I'm a few more years of school left and then I'll be out in kind of the big wide world. How am I going to make this happen? And I'd use common sense at the time, which basically I'd, I'd told myself that I needed money and I needed to at least be able to drive a car before they'd let me fly an airplane. That's what I thought was common sense. But I actually read in a local newspaper about this young kid who had flown an airplane solo for the very first time, so on his own, completely in that aircraft, for the very first time, the day that he turned 15. And wow. I was a 14 year old kid reading this, uh, this, this uh, article in the newspaper, and I was jealous. I was envious. I just wanted it more than anything in the world. And, and that's kind of was the turning point to say, well, this is possible. And if he can do it, why can't I? And then that's how I ended up starting my flying lessons. So, and how, uh, you know, how long does it take before you? could actually go in that plane on your own and what was that moment like for you well i'd read that article i'd been so envious of this young guy flying solo on his 15th birthday the first day that he legally could that i found an after school job and a, a job on the weekends and i saved my money and i i had a flying list and every i can save fortnight we can't say fortnight in america because all the americans look at you funny because it's not a word here but every fortnight i would jump in the airplane and and, and take a flying lesson I went solo on my 15th birthday and then the next week there was an article in the local newspaper and it was about a kid who flew solo on his 15th birthday, but this time it was me. So pretty big moment in life because it, I think it kind of like opened this door to, it made me realize at a young age what you can do if you're really dedicated and passionate towards one kind of, kind of goal. And it also kind of uncovered this beast inside of me that wanted to do everything I possibly could within aviation at the youngest possible age and that obviously as you know led to some wild adventures. You had to crack on with it didn't you with your uh, attempt to fly solo around the world so that, that was obviously a, a great um, aviation record that was out there for you to to tackle so uh, tell us uh, at that stage who who was the record holder for um, the youngest person to fly solo around the world. And was that an inspiration for you? Was that, was that a record you just became determined to beat? Yeah. So I, I actually, I, I read another article, um, believe it or not. And it was about a young kid who had flown around the world as an American man. Uh, he was 23 years old. His name was Barrington Irving. And he had broke the record for the youngest person to fly a little single engine airplane solo around the world. And uh, that was in 2008 prior to Barrington the record was 37. So there really wasn't an age record. It had gone from 37 to 23. At this point in history, more people, I kind of, I'm aging myself, but at this point in history, more people had been to space and flown solo around the world. So it really wasn't something that a lot of people pursued. And here I was 17 year old kid, not real good at mathematics, but like I have six years if I was going to pull this off. And it was kind of wild because that started the process of uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about contacting Dick Smith and, and started the process of this two-year planning, training, fundraising phase that led to the round-the-world flight. But And then the round-the-world flight really happened at a much younger age than we expected. It happened at 19, which the best part about that is, yes, we broke an age record, but we actually achieved an aviation first, which I'm much more proud of, I can say. You know, records are made to be broken, but 
there's just not a lot of aviation first left in the world. And to be the first teenager to fly solo around the world is something that'll always be attached to our team. You know, yeah. it was such a team effort. So we're pretty proud of that. Yeah, something to be proud of, something for Australia to be proud of as well. And you mentioned Dick Smith. So I guess that takes us to how, from the moment that you decided that you were going to fly solo around the world, you don't just do something like that. How did you uh, work out, you know, the route and, and all the logistics of that and all the safety things and the red tape, of course, which is probably as much of a challenge as anything else. Uh, and of course, the all important funding of something like that, you know, and you, you you didn't have a lot of time to get all that together. And you were a very uh, young person at the time. So how on earth did you tackle that? Yeah, I can uh, honestly say, and I say it in the keynotes here in the US and wherever we kind of zoom in and, and, and virtually speak to, but I always say that I'm just as proud of the two years, if not more proud of the two years that led up to the round the world flight than I was of the 70 days of the you know, actual adventure. And I say that because I was a kid at 17 year, years old with a dream that had no idea how to even begin the process. And I remember the, the first thing I ever did was I Googled how to fly solo around the world, right? Like any wannabe teenage adventurer will do these days. I was like, how to fly solo around the world. And people laugh at me, but I found a website that was how to fly solo around the world, right? So, you know, I got the last laugh. I found all this information. I printed it off, I highlighted all the important parts and I actually hid it in my desk, in my room. I hid it and I was hiding it from my mum, my dad, my brothers, all my family. I didn't want anyone to see it. I didn't anyone, uh, want anyone to think that I was silly enough to believe this was possible. And uh, it kind of was this state where I, I Googled it, I found the information, I read all that I could read on the internet and then I wanted to take it further. I was like, this has to keep moving, especially because it was age related. So there was a, a deadline. And um, that's when I decided that although I didn't want to tell my parents, I could probably contact Dick Smith. He'd flown around the world five times. He was an incredible aviator, incredible businessman, uh, and just such a, a figure that knew so many people. So he hates me telling people this. But how do you contact Dick Smith? Right? Well, I Googled Dick Smith's email address and I found five. And I sent an email to all five and he actually replied. And um, he set a challenge just like he did with Jess Watson, you know, find a mentor, someone who can convince me you're the guy for the job. And if you do that, I'll support you. So I went and did exactly that. Uh, the second person who ever heard about this was a guy called Ken. Uh, he now lives in Missouri as a corporate jet pilot, but he had flown around the world in 2008 with another gentleman in a light aircraft. Not many people out there knew what I was getting myself into, but he did. And he agreed to be my mentor. He was based in Bendigo at the time. And um, I went back to Dick Smith and I said, Hey Dick, meet Ken. All of a sudden, we had a team of three, which was great and it was exciting, but I still hadn't asked mum and dad. So it kind of went back to this. Oh. So I, I did the dishes one night, which I think helped. And I sat down with dad and I asked dad and I asked mum. And my mum's a text me when you get there, mum. You know, those mums who, if you don't text her when you get there, you, you'll get a text message, trust me. And so what could go wrong? I asked my parents and um, they're incredible humans. They, jumped on board to support me. And um, little did we know that really none of us had any idea what we we're getting ourselves into, but it was the building of that team of five that started this two years of planning, training, fundraising. We fundraised a quarter of a million dollars with a laptop computer. Mm. You know, we took uh, the privilege out of adventure and we really did it the hard way. And we're proud of that. It was, gosh, from a flight planning point of view, a pilot uh, competency point of view, as you mentioned, red tape logistics and all these other issues that come with planning around the world flight. 
not to mention the media and all the kind of you know attitude and different feedback that you would get from the general public who were trying to kind of compute what you were doing and digest that um and then getting an airplane like if you think that you know renting a car is hard at an airport under the age of 25 you should try renting an airplane to fly around the world at 17 you know is is so hard and it was a two-year period that took me all around the world and you know trying to meet companies and kind of you know learn this whole concept of business and planning and all of this stuff that I had no idea about when I was 17 including tax like all of this stuff that I just had no idea about uh, I grew up very quickly and we had an incredible team that worked very hard and it um, resulted in a opportunity at 19 you know June 30 to climb into a single engine airplane that we had rented covered in sponsor stickers and including Australian Geographic and um, to jump in that airplane and take off and and attempt to break a record, you know, and, and make some change. Tell me about that um, that day when you left uh, and you flew <laughs> off in the plane. My favourite story about that whole day is that I'd said goodbye to all my family and friends that were all there at Wollongong Airport with me. I was so nervous. I had no idea what I was doing. It was way too late to turn back. It was just this case of like, you did this. You said you would now go and do and I remember getting the airplane and I'd say goodbye to everyone people are crying like Charles Woolley Uncle Charles from 60 Minutes we called him Uncle Charles was standing there with his whole crew like we just had this moment and it was very early in the morning and I climbed up in that airplane I sat down I thought here he goes come on I'm like yeah let's start it up well then my phone rang and it wasn't really a time when you would answer the phone but I answered the phone for some reason it was Tony Abbott <laughs> and I didn't even know that we were connected with Tony Abbott, I had no idea what to say or what I said. Hello, it's Ryan speaking. And he said, Oh, it's Tony Abbott here. And I said, Oh, hello. And um, everyone's just quiet while I'm having a conversation on the phone with Tony Abbott. At the end of the flight, um, spoiler alert, I made it back. And I actually made it back on September 7, which was federal election day. And I it was the first time in my life I ever had to vote. I was, you know, first time I'd been old enough. And I remember arriving back on the end of the round of world flight going to the polling booth in my flight suit, looking at the two candidates, realizing that Tony Abbott had called me and whoever the other person was hadn't. So I voted for Tony and he won. <laughs> That's what I remember. <laughs> so you, uh, you, you're flying around the world in this uh, single plane, which probably means that you spend, is it, would it be days in the air or, or what was so the long? It was in the air. It was 24,000 nautical miles total. It was 70 days, averaging a flight every two days and then having a day off to repack the, the ferry tank we had in the back of the airplane and get it all set up. It wasn't a race. It was about safety and making it home. And um, so 24,000 nautical miles, 35 stops, 15 countries. The shortest leg was 20 minutes and the longest leg was 15 hours nonstop. And it was this was in an airplane that normally would run out of fuel after about six hours. We had taken 160 gallons um, uh, of a fuel tank, a big bag of fuel, and we'd installed that inside the cockpit with me. So it was basically a flying fuel tank, and that allowed you to fly for about 17 hours, uh, 16 and a half hours before you ran out of fuel. So Hawaii to California was about 2,150 miles nonstop over water. And with the winds that we had against us on the day, it ended up being 15.0 hours. So incredibly uh, an incredibly long time in a little airplane and did you then you flew in a an easterly direction out of australia and that went that way around so you got all your long did you get all your long legs done in the first part of the flight 
Yeah, the the average leg was about nine hours, which is incredibly long in a single engine airplane. But we had to go straight out of Wollongong and then I pointed the airplane northeast over the Pacific Ocean and island hopped all the way to uh, the US, to North America, and specifically landing in the Los Angeles area. So uh, Norfolk Island, American Samoa, uh, Christmas Island or Kiribati, we had fuel shipped to Kiribati three months early just so we had enough fuel on the island to be able to fill the airplane up. So we filled the airplane up out of drums. We took off out of Kiribati. We diverted 180 nautical miles right a track to go around a 60,000 foot thunderstorm, which at that point in my life, I didn't know that thunderstorms existed that big until that day. But um, that was a moment in the flight. Landed in Hawaii, a little bit of maintenance on the aircraft, this long 15 hour leg to California. That was kind of like we'd cross the Pacific Ocean, which is just water the whole way. And um you know, when you're halfway between Hawaii and California, you're a thousand miles from land in any direction in any way, which was just, you're in a single engine airplane. Like it's a real, why am I doing this moment? And I think every good adventure has that. I think it's interesting because you say we, but it, it wasn't we, it was definitely you and you were on your own in that plane. So <laughs> I, every, can you sort of put the autopilot on and go and stretch your legs? I mean, what? it's a tiny little cockpit, isn't it? It was tiny. So it was literally, I had enough room to sit. So I'd sit down into the airplane and uh, behind me was all fuel tank and bags. You just couldn't do anything. It was right up against the back of my head. And to the right-hand side of me in the right hand or the co-pilot seat was Bob the life raft uh, strapped into the seat and a ditch bag. And then all of this array of pumps and hand pumps, electric pumps, uh, over water HF radio equipment, like all this stuff that we needed to cross these oceans that, you know, this airplane's not designed to do this. So all of the stuff that helped make that happen was in the right-hand seat. So no, it was no different than sitting in an office chair and not moving for 15 hours. And the airplane did have an autopilot, which we could use once we'd burnt that excess weight out of the airplane that the airplane wasn't really designed to fly with. So we were well up over our maximum takeoff weight. Um, we had approvals to be able to do that. And um, yeah, so it was, it was wild. The, Crossing in North America was pretty easy. Uh, I just really enjoyed that up through the world's biggest air show, which we just got back from speaking at uh, a couple of days ago. And we, um, I ended up then crossing the North Atlantic, which was a really kind of stressful leg, quite a dangerous leg, um, freezing conditions, icing on the aircraft, aircraft not designed to do it. Um, out of Canada, over the tip of Greenland, into Iceland, then Iceland down to Scotland. And then uh, we had Scotland, England, France, Greece, everything from the French Alps to the White Cliffs of Dover. We had um, landed in Greece, lots of issues, kind of went down on a small island in Greece with approvals and a crazy lady who's no longer on my Christmas card list, which is another story, but um, ended up diverting around Egypt, which was in crisis at the time, to then uh, fly around Iraqi airspace, descend over the Red Sea, ending up in Aqaba, Jordan, nine hours over Saudi Arabia, uh, just lots of sand, ended up in Muscat, Oman, uh, Oman to Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka to uh, diversion to Malaysia, Malaysia to Indonesia, and then Indonesia back into Broome. And then honestly, Chrissy, for the first time in my life, I had the opportunity to fly across my own country, which is pretty cool. And that's, just, and that's not done in a short time either, is it? No, no, it's not. But I tell you what, when that beach at Broome came under the airplane, you know, in a single engine airplane, the biggest, you just have no redundancies in the form of a power plant. And then I tell you what, when that beach come under there, I just thought this is the best thing in the whole wide world. So landed in Broome and I climbed out of the airplane once they, we had to sit in the airplane and spray insecticides whilst border patrol and customs watched 
and I sat and incubated in that uh, stuff for about 15 minutes and they finally let me out. And um, a complete stranger walked up to me with a brown paper bag with a meat pie in it, which was uh, about the best welcome home. I think you could, uh, that's when I realized I was at home. Plus the fact they would let me drive a car, which was pretty neat. So. <laughs> Very good. And then you, um, what happened, you, you kept, because you actually came back to Wollongong, didn't you? And that's where... Yeah, we went all the way across the country and we landed at Wollongong and had that um, big homecoming, which was incredible, and and then went and voted. And um, the next night we had 60 Minutes ran and it was just, a from that point on, honestly, a bit of a whirlwind. It was, you know, we had to get the aeroplane back because it yeah. was rented and we had, right. yeah, we had nights with you guys at Australian Geographic. We ended up at award ceremonies everywhere from Australia to Thailand. And we did all sorts of incredible things with incredible people and uh, wrote a book and went on a book tour and, and um, went on the Australian speaking circuit and all the while still flying as a professional pilot, which was just, it was a lot to take in. It was a, a whirlwind opportunity to meet incredible people and, you know, just crazy experiences for a normal Aussie kid. Still only 19 at this stage. Or yeah, I was 19 and I was, yeah, I, I turned 20 the following year. So I was a young kid and, you know, like, you, you know, your life's kind of taking a unique turn when you're standing face-to-face meeting the royals, you know, having a conversation with Prince William and and realising that he at heart's just a pilot at the end of the day. I think he was just happy to stand and talk aviation and not royals or, you know, royal talk. But um you know, all of these things like that happen, meeting Buzz Aldrin at the Australian Museum and being named one of Australia's 50 greatest explorers, which still blows my mind as a guy who can't make his bed in the morning. But, um, you know, <laughs> just realising that the records didn't matter. I think this is really important. The record didn't matter. Uh, we learnt that straight away. Mum was the one who forced me to submit the Guinness Book of World Record paperwork. But um, I'm glad she did. Mum's always right. But I, what mattered was the impact we had had and you know, you mentioned the we thing. We get that at every keynote. It's, you know, weren't you the only person in the airplane? I said, well, yes, I was, but it wasn't a single solo adventure. It was a team effort. And, you know, without the team of people behind us, it just, you know, that's that's why it's a we event, not nine. Yeah, no, absolutely. We always know that with all of our uh, adventurers that they, in the end, they take the risk and they are out there on their own, but they know that they've got all of this support. And and as you say, Australian Geographic and Dick Smith have been great supporters of yours. We love our aviators at Australian <laughs> Geographic. And it's just something, it's, it's a whole lot of things that go with aviation, which is, there's some glamour, it's part of it is glamour and, and the thrill and, and, and whatever. So it was absolutely fantastic. And it was great uh, to meet you there at the, uh, the Trailblazers exhibition at the Australian, it's a very landmark exhibition and, um, you know, to be named one of the 50 greatest uh, explorers of Australia at such a tender age is a fantastic achievement. So congratulations on on, on all of that that happened at the time. So um, a couple of years later, so tell us what happened after that, because you, then you became a professional pilot. And how did that yeah. feel? How did that come about? And where, what happened next? Well, I'd passed my commercial pilot's license well before when I was 18. So I had a commercial pilot's license ready to kind of pursue. And I'd actually been flying scenic flights prior to the round the world flight when it ended up becoming too busy. I had to kind of step back from that and focus on the trip, but I had been flying commercially before it. And, you know, when we say commercially, everyone really has a different idea. It's not just the airlines. It's working as a pilot, a pay pilot in any form. But um, 
that's what I did after around the world flight. I took a job opportunity in, uh, in the Newcastle area and I went up there and, and was flying aeromedical aeroplanes with patients aboard, uh, around kind of regional New South Wales and, and Queensland and stuff like that, which was, um, I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was a great opportunity and an opportunity to kind of expand your skill set and everything. And it really was cool. And, um, I actually did a speaking gig in Canberra where I met some individuals who were very high up in Qantas link and Qantas was my dream airline. That was everything that I ever dreamed of as that six year old kid. And, um, I was offered a position with them, which I turned down in the end. And I turned it down because I had a, a desire and a dream inside of me to fly warbirds. I wanted to fly world war two era warbirds and specifically one that's called the spitfire. Uh, that was kind of the heart of the Battle of Britain in World War II. And and um, I wanted nothing more than to fly that. So I thought, you know what, I'm young. I'm going to keep flying and, and build the unique experience that I have so far. I want to build on that. And um, there's always time to go to the airlines later on in life. And and that led to an opportunity to fly a World War II era trainer uh, called a Tiger Moth. And it was a beautiful airplane, a beautiful part of the world up on the Gold Coast. And it was just great i mean I was, a, I was a lucky guy it was you know it was a good job and and i was up there on uh 28th of december 2015 and i was just at work a normal day you know we weren't crossing oceans or any wild adventures you know i was at work and i took off early uh, in the morning for what was meant to be a say 20 25 minute scenic flight uh with potentially some loops at the other end you know some aerobatics if the passenger was that way inclined and i had a extremely nice gentleman with me and uh, reminded me a lot of my family and and uh, he had a bit of a background in aviation and we took off out of this airstrip and as the end of the airstrip went below the nose of the aircraft we had an engine failure we lost power at a very low level and what resulted was a few seconds of kind of we have to I had to do what I could you know everything that was put into me in training and you know, all my experience come to fruition that day. And I did absolutely everything I could in my power, but it wasn't enough. It, what resulted was a horrific accident, horrific, so much so that I was cut out of the wreckage and flown to hospital as the only survivor. And it was just, I don't know how to explain it. I can say it a million times, but it'll never, ever be easy. It was a day that, changed everything it was a day that nobody wanted it was a day that nobody imagined and I was in hospital and yes I had five breaks in my back my facial bones were shattered my right ankle was almost removed and I woke up with no movement or feeling below my waist I was a complete paraplegic but at the end of the day I was incredibly lucky I really shouldn't have been there at all and that changed my life the very thing that gave me my identity uh, was the very thing that took it all away and you were still only a young man at, at that stage uh, as well. I mean, still only a young man today. <laughs> I, I feel very old these days. I tell everyone my birth certificate's young, but my body and my mind are about 75 at this point. But um, yes, I was young and I was, I turned 22 in hospital. I was just shy of 21, uh, just shy of 22. I was 21 years old and I was, you know, I was a pretty experienced young guy at that point, you know, just considering the background and, and everything that had occurred in my life in aviation, I'd just been embedded within it for, you know, years at that point since I was 14. And it was the only thing I ever knew, you know, and I always say I had a book called Born to Fly. And, you know, I didn't name the book, but I would never have called it that. But it was 
a good indicator of who I was. It was, it was my identity and it was everything that I loved. And, and um, that day just, it's, it's unexplainable. It'll never, ever go away. Tell us how you coped in those uh, days and months after that tragedy. The only way that I could ever, I didn't care about me. I cared about the bigger picture and the loss and everything that went with that. And that's what, that was the true mountain that I had to climb. And the only way that I could ever continue on, and I really couldn't have if this wasn't the case, but I knew that on that day, and it took a long time to get to this point, but I knew that on that day, I had made the very best decisions that I could with my experience. I had tried my absolute best and I uh, was not, I didn't want to be in that position either. Mm-hmm. And I had done everything that I possibly could. And if you put me back in that position today, you know, not knowing the outcome and you gave me another go, I don't think I would do anything different. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And it's, um, we live in the world of armchair quarterbacks and it's very uh, easy to sit behind a, uh, a, key- a keyboard in hindsight and, and give your opinion when there's very few people who truly understand what it's like as a human to be put in that position uh, in that moment and have everything come down to a few seconds. And I just don't know what else I could have ever done. And it was getting to that point, which took a very long time that allowed me to, to be somewhat okay. And I'll never be, it'll, there is always a struggle even now back flying. Like there's, it'll never go away. This will be part of my life and part of the struggles I face on a day-to-day basis, quite literally for the rest of my life. And it, um, it was really at that point, you know, it was a mental challenge, not a physical challenge. I can tell you that learning to walk again was a mental challenge, not a physical challenge, not to mention getting over the struggles of that day. Uh, but I was put into a spinal rehabilitation ward in hospital for almost six months. And I was put into a, a rehabilitation program that lasted about a year and a half in total. So you're in hospital, you've got very serious injuries. Where do you go from there, Ryan? How do you come back from something like that? What they uh, started to do for me was they, the doctors would come in and for a very long time, I was kind of stuck in bed and, and couldn't really do anything. But um, eventually they started to put me in a sling. They'd lift me up above that bed a, a couple of inches at a time and they would leave me hanging until the pain was too much and they put me back in bed. And as, as much as that wasn't enjoyable, every day I was able to hang for a little bit longer. And what we were able to do uh, after a while was actually get out of that bed and get into a wheelchair and once I was in the wheelchair, I started operating to a timetable just like at school. Now, what that eventually became was two sessions in the rehabilitation gym every day, bringing my body back to life, uh, sessions with a psychologist, working on my mind, uh, patient education, learning what a spinal cord injury did to you as a person, which uh, was a whole lot more than what I first knew. But um, a whole bunch of things, hydrotherapy and the list continues. But I would work every day, five days a week you know, whilst in rehab in hospital to find my new maximum potential, find my new normal. And um, my future was really unknown. We, they built me a purple wheelchair. And for, for what we really knew at the time, there was a good chance that I would stay in that. I was a complete paraplegic. And over time, we saw recovery. We saw a flicker of a toe, a twitch of a muscle, and and the hard work started to pay off along with some luck based on how and where I injured myself and, and the body just working to, you know, to heal itself. And that twitch of a muscle turned into 
um, the ability over time after we built strength to be able to stand up for the very first time since the accident. And that was then a very slow progression working every day to go from standing to shuffling with uh, physios, moving my feet to then shuffling myself unassisted in that frame and then graduating from a big frame to a, a lighter walking frame to a smaller frame and then eventually crutches. And after this very long process, you know, well beyond hospital, I was able to leave my crutches behind and, and walk unassisted. Now you can't see because this is a podcast, but the way that I explain it to people is I walk like I've had a few too many Tennessee whiskeys. I look, I look like I had a big night out on a down. I'm just coming home. But um, a lot of things wrong with me physically that mean, you know, getting around is tough. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, functions below the, the waist are, are permanently lost. Uh, I've got no calf muscles, no glute muscles, no push in my feet, no control roll or anything, really no control in my feet at all. I have no feeling in my feet. The backs of my legs are where I sit. Uh, bladder and all those internal systems are all gone uh, permanently. But the reality of the situation was that I was given enough back to be able to adapt, um, to find new ways to do old things. And, you know, I've managed to to now be at a place where, you know, it's it's not easy, but it's incredible given what the diagnosis was. And that's testament to your um, strength of uh, character and that determination that got you up into the air as such a young person um, is still a big part of who you are today, Ryan. And that uh, to overcome such enormous injuries, uh, both probably, I'm sure, mental and physical um, is a great testament to you and, and, and why you're so much one of our great heroes at Australian Geographic. Um, so you're walking again you've got um some ability to walk as you say what about flying were you still looking at the possibility that you would never be able to fly again there was definitely a time where you know you you didn't want to utter the word or a plane around me whilst i was in hospital but um to be honest it didn't last very long the first time that i ever got out of hospital i took myself stubborn as i am uh, my nan says i'm stubborn my pa says i'm determined so <laughs> i prefer to i prefer to lean and, and and side with pa on this one but um i was determined to get out of that hospital and get back in an airplane and i was determined to do it myself and um i remember checking out a hospital there in sydney catching a uh taxi to uh, the train station in sydney i was in my wheelchair i had my crutches between my legs I had my bags on my knees and I remember I still had my hospital band on. I was literally on weekend leave and um, I went to the train station. I caught a train halfway to Newcastle. The train broke down. We got out in the rain, ended up in a bus, ended up back up in the Newcastle area where they lifted me up into an airplane. And I went flying as a passenger for the first time since the accident, which was incredibly tough. And that was for me um, the beginning of the journey back. And I started to look at, uh, learning to walk as a stepping stone on the way back to the cockpit. And I was determined to fly again. Now, permanent paralysis in my feet uh, kind of rules out most airplanes, you know, the high 90s uh, as a percentage of all airplanes uh, are now no longer um, uh, able to be flown by me. I, I just don't have the ability to put the brakes on uh, and the strength and control in my feet but I did work with the Civil Aviation uh, Safety Authority. They were incredible. And we ended up getting a medical certificate back that was uh, for hand and heel brakes. So brakes that we operated with my heels or my hands. And 
I ended up uh, buying a, a little airplane. I was given an incredible deal from uh, some friends who just wanted to see me back in the air. And I ended up buying this little airplane called Doug. Uh, we named him after a World War II double amputee Spitfire pilot called Douglas Barter. Oh, yeah, and, um, yeah. yeah so that's that's Doug's namesake so Doug the Cub is uh, was my ticket back into the air so I was able to after a lot of work with CASA to get back in that airplane and fly it solo which was incredible the opportunity to be back in the air was wild I, I can't underestimate how lucky I am to do that and um, that airplane did travel with me to the US I put it in a box this time I wasn't going to fly across that ocean again and I put it in a box and, and it's now, you know, here in Nashville with us and, and we fly it around quite a bit. Um, I will say one other thing that we had happened in the flying world as we kind of worked our way back to flying was, although I was flying fixed wing airplanes, I was flying the Cub, um, Doug the Cub. I, I still wanted to fly commercially and I had this burning desire in me to do that. And, you know, it's, it's what I'd wanted for my whole life. And I ended up retraining completely as a helicopter pilot because I've been placed while still on my crutches into a helicopter that a friend owned. I had tried to move the pedals. We had success. I then worked with CASA and a whole bunch of other organizations to have helicopter uh, approval added to my medical certificate. And I went to Orange. And as an incomplete paraplegic, which is my diagnosis these days, I went on to obtain my commercial helicopter license and I'd never flown a helicopter before. So to be given an opportunity to find a, a new world of aviation that I hadn't yet been in uh, after the accident was was pretty incredible. So I, I made my way back to the sky. You eventually moved to the States, as you say, packed Doug up into the box and went to the States. Tell us about that journey to go and live in America and why you did that and what is it that you do now that you're living in America? So I was actually flying the helicopter one day in Orange and I was flying around. I'd flown the whole day training. I just had the best day. It was great. And I landed with a smile on my face. I got out of the helicopter and I went and hopped in the ute. And I have to swap all these American words back to Australian words now. I hopped in the ute, not the truck. And I, I went with dad down to the grocery store and I uh, said to him, my foot feels funny, which was odd because I couldn't feel my feet. So I ended up taking my shoe off and I found my shoe was full of blood. And what I had done was I actually had a rock in my shoe all day and I was unaware of it because I couldn't feel my feet. And I'd flown the helicopter all day vibrating, uh, you know, and the rock had eaten into my foot. So that put me into a burns unit for a week in Sydney and then back into the wheelchair for another two months. And it was during that two months that I realized that there was something bigger here. I wanted to be a pilot. And I, I did go on to finish my helicopter license and I will use it where I can as time goes on. But I saw a priority, even though I didn't want to be a, a speaker, I saw this incredible unique opportunity that I've been given in a way uh, to, to experience the highest of the high and then the lowest of the low, to go to that high point of breaking the record, the round the world flight, meeting the Royals, but then to have that all taken away and be end up at this ridiculously kind of backbreaking low. And to be then given the opportunity to compare the two and to learn from it, to ask myself, where do I become the best version of myself? You know, do I learn in, in the good times or do I learn in the bad times? And what I learned from that was too good not to share and it far outweighed my unwillingness to want to share it. So I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue speaking. And if I'm going to do that, I want to do it in the U S. So I uh, followed in the footsteps of a few friends who'd come over here and had, success and, and create a lot of impact. And I 
brought Doug with me and I moved to the US. And now we, uh, even though COVID was a, a massive um, kind of just, I don't even, even know what word to use without being rude, but it, it just upset the path that we were on, just like everyone else in an incredible way uh, with the shutdown of the industry. But we went to virtual and we've now delivered a whole bunch of virtual keynotes and sessions with all sorts of different people from you know, Mars through to GE aviation and all sorts of different people. And last week we hopped on stage in person for the very first time since the pandemic started. And for the first time, actually, since I moved to the U S and I stood on stage and delivered a keynote and we have a bunch more in-person keynotes lined up in the near future to, uh, you know, to go and deliver. So we deliver a turbulence, tough message. My brand's turbulence tough. And we talk about resilience and we talk about, you know, resilience being a learned and refined skill. And we talk about adversity being a byproduct of breathing and, you know, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter age or, you know, sex or religion or, you know, color of your skin. It doesn't matter where you live. doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. None of that matters. Adversity is a part of life and we have to partner that up with resilience and we have to become turbulent stuff in order to have the right mindset to be able to ride out life's roughest storms and, if we can nail that, if we can grab hold of that, and if we can, you know, become proficient in that, then it opens up a whole new world of what you can achieve, such as things like the round the world flight, you know, it allows you to go out there and confidently craft your own life uh, because you have that confidence behind you that no matter what comes your way, you'll be able to, to get through it and write it out. And there's never been a, a, a better time or a time when a message like that is most needed as the world, uh, tries to sort of get back on its feet after this uh, global pandemic. So I think your message is absolutely right on cue and right on time. And I'm so thrilled to hear you speak, such an articulate speaker, Ryan. It's just wonderful to hear you. So I do hope that we get to hear you back in Australia uh, in the not too distant future when we can all travel again. <laughs> we are doing everything we can to get home in November. So we're at this point, hopefully uh, coming home for a little bit um, to visit if they'll, if they'll let us in. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you today. Um, and we wish you all the best for the future. I appreciate it. Say good day to uh, all the Australian Geographic family for me. I can't wait to come home. We will do that. So thank you very much. Cheers. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com. Or find us on Instagram, at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Listener.